Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Levi Proctor, an assistant professor of surgery at the University of Kentucky Chandler Medical Center. Joining us today is Dr. Matthew Martin. Dr. Martin is the trauma medical director and the chief of surgical research at the Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington, and he's also an active colonel in the U.S. Army. Today, we will discuss the influence of military surgery and critical care has had on the civilian trauma practice. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Martin. Hey, thanks, Levi. Glad to be here. So just to start off, can we summarize over the last decade, what do you feel the most significant advances discovered during war and military surgical care that has been translated in our current civilian trauma practice? Yeah, and and let me start off by giving the standard uh, government disclaimer that uh, I'm speaking for myself, and these are my opinions, and I'm not representing the government or the U.S. Army. Uh, and, that, and that's a great question. That's actually that's the million dollar question of what have we learned and what can we take away from these, you know, these horrific wartime experiences and having a prolonged conflict going on for over 10 years now. We've certainly taken a lot of lessons learned uh, and have been able to apply them in the civilian arena. I, I think the biggest ones have been in the pre-hospital and early resuscitation period. So things like simple things like controlling extremity hemorrhage with a tourniquet, you know, that's been a big a big lesson that we had to relearn. Uh, and then controlling uh, junctional hemorrhage with hemostatic dressings, uh, and we now have junctional tourniquets that are being deployed. And I think just how we re- approach the whole resuscitation of the patient early on in terms of uh, allowing permissive hypotension. Uh, early use of blood products, and certainly changing our ratios with a damage control resuscitation approach. Uh, you know, th- there have been many other uh, advances, but I would say those are really the big ones and the ones that I think have really uh, put a dent in our battlefield mortality. Can you comment on the scoop and run technique and how this has helped save so many of our injured soldiers' lives? Uh, yeah, and and if you draw a graph that shows evacuation times in combat, and mortality that they basically will run neck and neck with each other as our evacuation times have gone down from World War One and two to Korean Vietnam to currently where we're at an average of 30 to 40 minutes uh, for a transport from the time of injury to a facility that has surgical capabilities. And we, we've seen a sharp reduction in the mortality associated with that. Uh, we, I think the military has certainly embraced the whole golden hour concept of allocating our assets so we have surgical care available within that golden hour for almost any wounded soldier on the battlefield. Uh, and, and our medics and uh, evac personnel are certainly taught the scoop and run philosophy of, of get the patient and get them to a military facility as quickly as possible. It's, uh, it's actually an interesting ongoing debate, though, because if you look at some of our European allies, uh, for example, the Brits, they've adopted a different approach uh, which is more of a, a combination of stay and play and scoop and run. Uh, we'll, we'll almost call it a uh, scoop and play. Uh, and they'll, they'll send out a uh, well-equipped full trauma team on a very large uh, helicopter, similar to a Chinook, uh, including blood products uh, and a surgeon and surgical capabilities. And they'll pick up the patient at the point of injury, and they'll be able to start resuscitation and, and even some operative interventions during the transport. Uh, there's been a couple of preliminary papers that have now been published looking at this, and uh, there seems to be a survival benefit for the the moderately injured patients, the, the severely injured ones that are generally going to die no matter what. 
uh, and the minor injured don't seem to have a benefit of this, but there does appear to be a benefit of that approach. And, and the U.S. military is looking at that with uh, great interest right now. So, so I think that's going to be more to come uh, in the next several years. What are the barriers for translating the lessons learned in the military to the civilian trauma setting? And is there a way to shorten the delay? Uh, yeah, I mean, the greatest, the greatest way to overcome these barriers is, is communication between the civilian and military providers. And, and I think that's been one of the hallmarks uh, of this, uh, the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, our civilian societies and, and specifically the trauma and trauma surgery community uh, has generally been with us 100% and really helped us to to uh, do the things we need to do on the battlefield to get these improved outcomes. And they've uh, also been very good at embracing some of the things that we're learning from that experience and applying it to the civilian environment. Um, so, but there's always room for improved communication. You know, another another obstacle, which which uh, I think has some merit, is that you know these are certainly different injury patterns than what you would see in the civilian environment. So, not all of these military lessons will apply to 99% of the civilian trauma patients. You know, we generally don't see patients with three extremities blown off in the civilian environment. Uh, but unfortunately, with the the uh, escalation of terrorist activities and uh, the ease of creating these improvised explosive devices that's uh, starting to creep into the civilian community more and more, uh, you know, as even the last year's Boston Marathon event taught us. So, so I do think there's a lot of lessons learned, and, and uh, I think it's being embraced very well. Tourniquets are now being pretty widely accepted by civilian EMS agents. Uh, hemostatic dressings are making inroads, but uh, I think we certainly have more room to grow. You mentioned one of my favorite instruments is a very simple tool that we call the tourniquet. It seems to ebb and flow with the literature every 10 or 12 years. It's the rage, and then it's the worst thing that we've ever used. Uh, I notice a lot among the pre-hospital providers that there's a lot of concern that they are potentially causing harm to patients by the application of a tourniquet for severe hemorrhage. Uh, with your experience, uh, do you think we can dispel this mythology finally? Yeah, and the easiest way to you know dispel mythology is with good data, and uh, we've gotten a lot of good data from very, a routine policy. If you're injured in theater and you're being cared for, especially by U.S. medics, you're getting and it's an extremity injury, you're getting a tourniquet placed. So we've got a huge body of data now, and and Al Beakley and John Craig have both published very good papers showing that that there's essentially no adverse outcomes to a properly applied tourniquet. Uh, now, properly applied means that it's applied so it occludes flow, but it's also monitored and taken off as soon as possible. Uh, you know, there certainly can be adverse events if they're used improperly, uh, if they're left on for prolonged periods of time. But when used properly, we haven't seen any incidents of it causing additional vascular injury or causing nerve injuries or muscle damage. Uh, and we have seen a lot of lives saved who would have died needlessly from an isolated extremity injury in the past. You know, and the other thing we see is a lot of different types of tourniquets. Uh, with the advent of everything that we have available in our country, you can go on Amazon and buy any tourniquet that you would like. Is there Are there ones that are better than another, and are the ones that you make shift in the field uh, even appropriate to consider using? Yeah, so, so there are ones that are better than others. Uh, so the first thing is, the first issue is a commercially available tourniquet which is designed for that purpose versus an improvised tourniquets. And, and we've learned from experience that improvised tourniquets generally do not work. They simply uh, cannot apply the pressure and the force uh, unless you're using a lever similar to a commercial tourniquet. 
the uh, the commercial tourniquets, we've we've tried multiple products. We've seen some that that are not as good as others. It, it needs to be uh, very rugged, especially for use in the field environment. Uh, the the Army has adopted the cat tourniquet. Uh, there's also a couple other versions that special forces are using. Uh, but in general, now the the commercially available tourniquets and the ones that the military have been using are, are very reliable. Uh, but I would caution you, yeah, you can go on Amazon and there are a bunch of lookalike products. Uh, and in fact, there were some, there were some fake combat application tourniquets that were even shipped to theater and those were quickly discovered to not work as well as the real thing. Another common disease pathology that you sometimes encounter is the treatment of uh, tension pneumothorax. Uh, should we be using different tools to treat tension pneumothorax and should we potentially be accessing the chest in different locations based on the military experience? Yeah, and I think the biggest thing that pre-hospital personnel or forward surgical team personnel need to understand is that there is a high failure rate with needle thoracostomy. That's taught as the pre-hospital or early hospital intervention for tension pneumothorax. We know that the failure rates from civilian series are, are up to 50 to 60 percent, uh, and that's always been attributed to the catheter not being long enough or it's being placed improperly. Uh, we actually did a series of studies uh, here at Madigan over the past two years uh, in pigs with a tension pneumothorax model and showed that even, even when this catheter, a standard angiocath, is placed properly, it failed in up to 50% of cases to relieve tension or to relieve uh, PEA arrest from tension pneumothorax. So, so I think this points that it's not just the length of the catheter and we can keep making longer and longer catheters and we're still going to have a failure rate when we're using a device that was designed for intravenous fluid infusion to decompress one of the most lethal pathologies on the battlefield or, or in civilian trauma. Uh, and, and we're currently working, and others are working, Peter Reed and his lab, working on improved devices. Uh, and I, I think they need to be a little more rigid, a little larger caliber, but you always have to balance that with the safety of placing this blindly into the chest. So, but the, the message is that, you know, do not count on a needle thoracostomy to decompress your tension pneumothorax, and I would always move uh, to a more definitive measure as soon as possible. In regards to hemostatic agents for civilian trauma, there seems to be a rather a buffet of choices. Are there versions that are better suited uh, for the uh, civilian environment, and are there ones that should be present in the trauma bay, pre-hospital, or the OR, uh, or does it matter which ones we use at all? Uh, yeah, and, and again, if you go online and Google or Amazon, you, you can probably pull up 20 or 30 different products and hemostatic bandages now. So, uh, you know, we call that an embarrassment of riches. Unfortunately, it does lead to a lot of, a lot of confusion uh, and a, lock of, a lot of uh, lack of uniformity. So the, the military has been pretty good about identifying our preferred product and then going with that. Uh, we initially deployed with the HemeCon bandage and quick clot powder, uh, and that gave medics a choice between a bandage type dressing and a powder dressing, and both were reasonably effective. Uh, we've since moved on to uh, what we feel are much superior products. Uh, our current combat dressing of choice is combat gauze, and the advantage of that is it's a gauze roll. It's coated with kaolin, which is a clot activating factor, but, it, but it's still a gauze roll which all medics are very proficient with using gauze rolls and packing wounds and getting hemostasis. So, so not only is it the effectiveness of the product, but it's also the ease of use and training. Uh, actually, just, just this week, the uh, Tactical Combat Casualty Care course sent out a uh, revised guidelines 
uh, adding two other products to the uh, approved line for the military for hemostatic. One is uh, Cialox gauze and one is Kyto gauze. And both of those are chitosan-based uh, gauze products. And they seem to work as well as combat gauze. Uh, there's a bunch of other products out and a bunch of products coming down the line. And right now, I think, I think we're looking for our next generation. I think our next generation products uh, are going to be active dressings that actually bring clotting factors into the game. Uh, and also, they're, they're making incredible progress with just biomechanical properties of some of these dressings uh, that can be poured into a wound and can be molded uh, to the wound contours and immediately stop hemorrhage. So, real, so I think some really exciting developments coming in that arena. For the ones that you currently describe that are available, is there any way or any places in the body or cavity that we shouldn't use them, or are they safe to lay adjacent to viscera for uh, open pelvic fractures or uh, high-energy uh, weapons that have destroyed the spine and you've got bone, venous uh, bone bleeding? Yeah, I, I'd say all of the next-generation dressings are safe to be used anywhere there's bleeding. Uh, some of the pro older products like Quick Clot, Quick clot would make a uh, significant exothermic reaction, which causes several millimeters of tissue burn. And obviously, you would not want to apply this product directly to a vessel or a nerve. Uh, the current products, though, uh, again, they don't generate any exothermic or other reaction. Uh, they're generally inert materials, and I would, I would use them like I would any lap sponge, knowing that you can put it in, but also it has to come out. So uh, none of these are designed to be left uh, in a wound cavity or when used intracavitary. But we, there's a number of case series now of using these products uh, in the body cavity and liver injuries, uh, like you said, in paraspinal or spine injuries. And uh, they've all been shown to be pretty effective, but they do need to be removed. The military experience has solidified the use of tourniquets, transexamic acid, Reboa, and hemostatic resuscitation. What do you feel are the next game changers to come from the military experience into the civilian trauma setting? Yeah, and, and you mentioned Reboa, and, and I think that's really in its infancy. There's a lot of interest in Reboa because, you know, we, I think we've, we've basically conquered extremity hemorrhage. We've made great progress for junctional hemorrhage with dressings, and now we have junctional tourniquets. Uh, and, and the big field of advance we need to make uh, advances in is intracavitary hemorrhage, and that's generally chest, abdominal, or pelvic bleeding that really you can do nothing in the pre-hospital environment other than getting them somewhere to a surgeon fast. Uh, Reboa is one interesting technique of putting a balloon up in the aorta and uh, occluding that, so essentially cross-clamping the aorta minimally invasively. Uh, I think uh, we've got a long way to go on proof of concept for that and clinical use, but uh, there's certainly a lot of interest and a lot of uh, courses popping up now to teach those skills to the trauma surgeon. I, I think that's going to become a key component of trauma training will be endovascular skills. Uh, there's also an interest in dressings that can be applied in the pre-hospital environment into bleeding cavities. Uh, Dave King and the group at Mass General Hospital is uh, developing a pre-hospital foam designed for intracavitary injection, and, and they've shown a significant uh, improvement in survival in porcine models with a variety of intra-abdominal injuries, including vascular injuries and solid organ. Uh, so, again, I think some exciting things to come on truncal hemorrhage, and, and that's really where our next big advance is going to come. We have been speaking today with Dr. Matthew Martin regarding the translation of war and military surgical care into the civilian trauma setting. On behalf of our listeners, I would like to thank you for your time for this podcast 
and for your past and continued service to our country. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I am Dr. Levi Proctor.